0: Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, your phone knows how you feel.
1: We actually spend a lot of our waking hours interacting with this device and interacting through this device. Every one of these interactions in isolation is just a small digital breadcrumb, but if you aggregate them together, you really get to see a pretty detailed picture of a person.
0: How researchers are mining data from our cell phones to improve everything from our mental health to recovery from surgery. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. It is Thursday, October 18th, 2018. And this week, we're digging back into the archive to share a story that we first broadcast two years ago. My co-host, Amy Montemiro, and I spoke to J.P. Anella, a researcher in the Department of Biostatistics here at the school, about his work to mine smartphone data to improve health. Take a listen. Amy, I'm going to ask you and our listeners to envision a scenario. Okay. You've just had surgery to remove a brain tumor, you've recovered in the hospital, and then you head home, and then you get a text from a friend asking how you're feeling. Hey, how are you feeling? Okay, some pain. So maybe that's a few days after you return home, and then a couple of weeks later, another text. Just checking in again. How are things going today? Much better. I've been able to start cooking again. And then a few weeks beyond that, you get one more text.
1: I heard about your surgery. How are you feeling? I'm doing well.
0: There's very little pain. Today, I was able to get outside and walk around the neighborhood. These conversations and the progression can actually tell your doctor a lot about your condition.
1: So the simple act of just typing a text message actually requires a ton of things to come together. That's JP and Ella an assistant professor of biostatistics at the Harvard Chan School.
2: He runs a lab that collects smartphone data and extracts insights about human health and behavior. So
0: back to that brain tumor example and why text messaging can be so insightful. You need
1: to have something to say. You need to be interested in saying something. You need to be able to see. You need to be able to type. So actually looking at things like how long does it take for a person to respond to a text message, how long are these uh, these messages in terms of number of characters, how frequent are they, and so on. I think all of these will provide very interesting and valuable information about a person's social and behavioral state. So initially you might assume that a person, if they're just recovering from major surgery, they might only send out very short messages, yes, no, doing okay, and so on. But as time goes, goes forward, if they start to recover better, their text messages might become more frequent, they might become longer, and, and so on.
0: All of this is an example of something called digital phenotyping. And that's what we'll be taking an in-depth look at today.
2: So what is that? Well, the traditional definition of a phenotype is that it's a collection of an organism's many traits, such as its anatomy or hormone levels, or its behavior.
0: So digital phenotyping involves mining data from electronic devices, such as smartphones, and using statistical tools to extract insights about a person's behavior. And this is significant, says Anella, because behavior has typically been very difficult to study because it's dynamic, it's always changing, and it's context-dependent, which means our behavior changes depending on the situation. Again, with that brain tumor example, your behavior will be very different after the surgery compared to before it.
2: And this is why smartphones are such a powerful tool. Everything we do, using our GPS for directions, making a phone call, texting a friend, they all leave behind these digital breadcrumbs. On their own, they may not tell us much, but taken together on a larger scale...
1: If you aggregate them together for, you know, a day or a week or a month, you really get to see a pretty detailed picture of a person.
2: And those are just the active things we're doing on our phone. But it's the passive data that can really tell a story.
1: And this
0: is why smartphones are more powerful than something like a Fitbit or another piece of wearable technology. Analysis that after a few months of usage, people use those devices less frequently, which means they're collecting less data. But that's not a problem with phones, which people are always using.
2: And our phones are always collecting information, even if we don't realize it. For example, doctors can have someone with depression complete a survey about their behavior, but looking at phone data can give remarkable insight into a person's sleep habits.
1: So just to give you an example, in a typical hour of a day, your smartphone screen might be on 10 times or 50 times, but during night when you're sleeping, it's almost never on. The only time it would be on if somebody sends you a message in the middle of the night. Mm. So just by looking at the frequency of screen on off events alone, we can get a pretty good estimate of how long you're sleeping and whether you woke up in the middle of the night. Now if we combine this with other layers of data, we can get even more precise estimates. But this smartphone data is really
0: only one part of the picture.
2: Where the real breakthroughs happen is when researchers like Onella can take the smartphone data and marry it to clinical information, things like blood work or lab tests or surgical outcome.
0: So if we return to our brain tumor example, we can see this in action. Onella and his team are working with Tim Smith, a neurosurgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital. After a patient has surgery, they'll complete surveys with Smith's team explaining how they're feeling, and they'll also have follow-up in-person visits.
2: But what about all that time at home? That's where Onella can use smartphone data to fill in the gaps. We gave the text message example, which measures cognitive functioning. But there are other things to look at as well.
1: So in this particular study, for example, one of the key sensors we're using is GPS. We would expect that the person, right after surgery, they will be at the hospital. Once they're released from the hospital, they will likely stay in their home for several days. They will not be leaving the house. But we can learn things like, How long do they spend in their house? When they leave their house, how long are they gone for? How many different locations do they visit? How far do they venture out from their house? So there's
0: all this data out there. So how do scientists like Anella actually collect it?
2: Well, they've gone beyond creating a simple app, and they've developed an entire research platform. It's called Biwi, named after the Nordic goddess of sunlight and mental health.
0: And it's particularly powerful because Anella and his team have designed it so it can be customizable for each study. So let's say a surgeon like Tim Smith from Brigham and Women's wanted to measure GPS data, text message length, and phone calls. Each patient would then download a customized version of the app that would collect only that information. Anella explains how that works
1: on the patient's side. And so what happens is that when we enroll patients in our studies, patients get a unique BVID number, which is just, let's say, ABC123 or something like that, and they get a temporary password. And with these two pieces of of information, they can go to iTunes or iStore, they can download the app, and they can enter their details into the app. And based on the we user ID, the system automatically gives them the right version of the app. So basically, that connects them to the right study. So they get the right uh, questions, they get the right kind of passive data collection, and so on. And B, we use is what's called store-and-forward architecture. So the idea is that the data are initially stored on the device, and next time when a Wi-Fi network becomes available, then the data are uploaded to the study server and erased from from the device. And the data are always encrypted, and this is critical, especially for. Uh, for a biomedical context. So to preserve patient privacy, we first hash all identifiers. And on top of that, we have a second layer, which is very strong encryption.
0: Anello said it's actually been fairly easy to recruit patients for these studies, especially once they know what data will be collected and how it will be used.
2: And so you might be wondering, when will I be able to download an app like this and use it? It turns out that's still
0: pretty far away, but analysis that in their current studies, they're working on ways to integrate reports generated
1: from smartphone data into one-on-one patient care. But the idea is that perhaps once a week or once every two weeks, we can take the data that we have collected from a patient and we can produce, say, a one-page report that tells something about this patient's mobility, their appetite, their mood, their social connectivity. And then the doctor can look at that report and discuss that the past week or past two weeks with the support of having that extra document there.
0: Anella's goal is to make this BWE platform open source by 2017, which means that other researchers can use it
2: for their own studies. And widespread adoption opens the doors to some incredible research opportunities, says Onella. At the heart of it is that passive data we talked about earlier. Because patients don't technically have to do anything, researchers can do incredibly long follow-up times, from six months to a year or two years. All the patient needs to do is to keep the app installed on their phone.
0: The technology also offers doctors and researchers an opportunity to
1: get a picture of a patient's life before they became sick or injured. So typically we only get to have the post data. So I go to see my doctor after I've hit my knee or my back is hurting or my, my head is hurting. But typically we have no data from what happened before. And the nice thing about the approach of digital phenotyping is that we could potentially instrument a large cohort, say 10,000 people or more, and then also have the pre-data. So we'd have the data from a person before something happens to them, before they get into a car accident, or before they uh, hit their knee, or whatever the condition is. And I think this is potentially very valuable.
0: Another group that could benefit? Scientists studying the environment and exposure to pollution.
1: So for example, you could imagine a study that follows people, uses their smartphone, GPS to direct their mobility patterns, so we can learn where these people are located physically um, at any point in the day. Now, if we have some kind of estimates of exposure to pollution at those locations, we can essentially calculate, reverse-engineer a person-specific exposure to, say, whatever the pollution you're interested in or particle you're interested in. And that's essentially your, your custom-made daily exposure to the environment.
0: As we talked, Anela emphasized
1: the importance of collecting raw data from devices.
2: Not only does that make the research he mentioned possible, but it will also make it easier for scientists in the future to replicate studies.
1: We know from a fairly recent study that about two-thirds of studies, medical studies, are inconsistent when retested. And only about 6% of studies are completely reproducible. The reason for collecting raw data is that we, or somebody else, can later reanalyze the data using whatever methodology they want to use. But also what's important is that if we relied on a proprietary summary statistic of someone's mobility, for example, what if that summary statistic changes in the middle of a study? So for example, if Google or iPhone or Apple, they decide to change some of these summary statistics that are proprietary. We would never find out. One day, it would just seem that 200,000 people in the United States are now walking 20% more. And this is obviously a problem. And actually, one of the features of our platform that we're building in now is one-click replication. So we were inspired by Amazon's one-click purchase button. The idea here is that the platform stores all the key settings of a study. So if you wanted to replicate my study next year, you would have to only find my study in the list of studies, click that, and you would essentially immediately be able to run your own study which uses the exact same settings for data collection as as my study so the idea here is to make the system as transparent as possible and to make it as easy as possible to replicate existing studies
0: another wants to make it clear that there's no financial gain here no one is buying or selling this data the goal he says is to simply better understand behavior and hopefully develop better treatments or interventions based on that information
2: Before we wrapped up our conversation with Onella, we had to ask him, does mining all the smartphone data make him think any differently about the way we all use our phones?
1: I think I've become a little bit more observant about the ways people use their phones. And and sometimes I see people walking around, even in Longwood, and the people seem to be glued to their smartphones. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be great data for us. But at the same time, I'm worried about these people walking into buildings or or being hit by someone. So it's, it's almost gotten to a point where we become so dependent on these devices that, that uh, it does make you think about the future. Um, but it, it certainly is an opportunity for us to get very rich uh, behavioral data.
2: So keep using those devices, but maybe avoid texting and walking.
0: Always very sound advice. And if you want to learn more about nose work, you can visit our website, hsphma slash health. And a reminder that you can always find our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify.